How you doing? Everybody's tired? You fired up? You ready? Yeah. It's a good day, man. It's a good day. Even though we lost some sleep, it's a good day. Um, it's awesome to see all the families that are dedicating babies. We see how we're growing, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and then looking at um, just being able to come and sing these songs, man. There's nothing like the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. There's nothing like the life that Jesus gives. And that's so good, man. It's so good. Um, never get tired of praising God, thanking God for what he's done in our life. And so um, I'm excited about this morning. Uh, we're going to continue the series in Philippians. If you want to turn there in Philippians 3, um, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. Um, we've been going through this for a few weeks. Um, actually have just a couple more weeks left, um, three to be exact, in this series. And so we'll be wrapping this up and then we'll get, be getting ready for Easter uh, it's kind of crazy that Easter is already here, but um, it's going to be good, going to be exciting. And so um, we're excited about that. So the name of the series is Partners in the Gospel. And we're really looking at how the church in Philippi, this Philippian church, partnered with Paul in the gospel and so many good things in this letter. And that's really what it is. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the church in Philippi. I've told you this in the past, but you can go read about how this church was started in Acts chapter 16. Go to Acts 16, you can read and see how Paul ended up getting there to Philippi. You can read about all the incredible things that happened there um, in Philippi. And then this letter was written years later back to this church to encourage them, strengthen them, as we're gonna see today, give them a warning and a reminder um, of some important things. And so this is what we're looking at. This is the letter that we're looking at. Um, I do want to pray for us real quick, uh, and then we'll just jump into this passage and see what the Lord has for us today. So, Father, I thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that, God, your living word is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it pierces into our hearts, the deepest part of our beings. God, that you would do that today that our hearts would be soft, good soil, ready to receive what you have to sow into us today. Lord, let this word, this seed, this scattered today, produce a harvest in our lives. God, a hundred times that which was sown. God, we thank you for it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, so you know it's getting serious when we bring out the weight bench, right? I'm sure you're probably wondering about that. I'm still praying, Lord, help this make sense. So um, I'm a little nervous about that. But anyway, um, when you go to the gym, if you've, been go, if you've been to the gym, if you go or get around people who go to the gym, a lot of times what you hear them talk about is gains. They want to see gains. They want gains, 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 especially like the big meathead dudes in the gym. Like that's what, like, I got to have some gains, you know? Um, and so that's one of the things that people talk about a lot in the gym. Here's my question to you today. How many of you in here would like to see gains in your relationship with God? right? You'd like to see some gains. You'd like to see some growth. You'd like to see some movement. You'd like to um, be able to rejoice in the Lord, have more joy in the Lord, maybe? Anybody? More joy in the Lord. 
um, have a, a greater joy in Jesus, that we could rejoice in the Lord in whatever circumstances come our way, that we could press on in life, moving ahead with joy in our heart um, in the midst of even all the uncertainty. Well, today, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how we can continue to press on with the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in Christ, no matter what we face, no matter what comes. And so if you will, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. We're just going to go through these verses and see what God tells us from them. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And so he's going back to uh, really chapter 2, and he's picking up on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the life he's given us, the life he's called us to live. And so he says, now as I'm continuing that thought, he says, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, if you can see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and, and, and you can understand the life he's given you, then why would we not rejoice in the Lord? And he says this, this is interesting. He said, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. And that's interesting because he's telling us a couple of things. He's saying, one, I'm not bothered to write what I'm about to write, even though I've written it many times, even though I've told you this many times. He says, it doesn't bother me to tell you again. And he says, and the second thing is, it's a safeguard for you. He's saying, this is safe. I'm going to tell you something again that is going to keep you safe keep you growing, keep you moving in the right direction. And so he says, this is a safeguard for you. He goes on in verse two and he says this, he says, watch out for those dogs. Think about when you're at a ballpark, like especially somewhere like Mill Creek Park, you got all those baseball fields. If you've had a kid that play, plays baseball, you got all those baseball fields all right there together. And then there's a foul ball. What does everybody say? Heads up. <laughs> Nobody knows where it's going. Nobody knows where it is. Everybody's just like this. It's kind of what Paul's saying. Heads up. He's saying, watch out. He's saying, here's a warning you need to pay attention to. And it goes on and he says, he's warning them against these evil doers. He says, watch out for those dogs. This is one of the most insulting things he could have called these people because most likely these people were Jewish. They were people who were preaching Jesus plus circumcision plus obedience to the law is what brings salvation. Jews called Gentiles or non-Jews dogs. They were seen as unclean, profane. And so Paul says, you need to watch out for these dogs. In other words, these are the real dogs. These are the ones who are still unclean. He says, you need to watch out for these dogs. You need to watch out for those evildoers. Now this literally means, um, and he's speaking of people who, uh, of these evil advocates of works or works-based salvation. Again, he's speaking about people who are trying to come in and tell the believers that you've got to add something to Jesus to be saved. It's not just through faith in Christ. It's Jesus plus the law, plus circumcision. And understand circumcision, it was not about the surgery. It was about what it signified. And circumcision for them signified that they were the people of God. You go back into the Old Testament with Abraham. 
And God said that circumcision was the sign of the covenant, the sign of the relationship with him. And so he's saying, if you really want to be a part of the people of God, then you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. That's what these evil doers, these evil advocates of workspace salvation were telling them is that Jesus isn't enough by himself. You've got to add these other things. And so Paul's coming at them hard because he knows that to have Jesus plus anything else is to totally do away with the gospel. Faith plus any type of works is to completely wipe away the gospel. And so he's coming at them hard. He calls them dogs, these advocates of works-based salvation. He says those mutilators of the flesh. He says, look, what they're doing, all it's doing is, is, is cutting up the flesh. He said, this is all that it's doing. He said, look, you, you, they can do this, but they cannot change you on the inside. They can't give you a new heart. That only happens through the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand this too, church, because this warning is something we need to heed as well, because this is so rampant in the church that we still believe that Jesus plus something else, plus my good behavior, plus my Sunday school attendance, plus my connect group attendance, plus my church attendance, plus my good deeds, plus this, plus that. Look, we still think that that is part of what saves us. And it isn't. It is either all Jesus or nothing. Jesus plus anything else is not the gospel. And so he's warning them. He's saying, works-based salvation can change the outside. But understand, it's just like a cosmetic surgery. It may make you look different, but on the inside, you're the same person. And he's warning them against this. I want you to know this today, that the greatest enemy of rejoicing in the Lord uh, and rejoicing in Jesus is not our job, it's not our spouse, it's not a teacher, it's not a coach, it's not our successes, it's not our failures, it's not our weight, it's not our prettiness, it's not our ugliness, it's not our clothes, it's not our house, it's not our car, it's not our bank account, it's not our taxes, it's not the president, it's not gas prices, it's not the government, it's not inflation, it's not Republicans, it's not Democrats, it's not liberals, it's not conservatives, it's not atheists, it's not agnostics, it's not slow drivers, it's not fast drivers, it's not backseat drivers, it's not the line at Walmart, it's not losing an hour of sleep, it's not realizing the weekend is almost over knowing you've lost an hour of sleep. Those are not the enemies of our rejoicing in the Lord. Because here's the reason, those are all circumstantial and God is greater than our circumstances. The greatest enemy to us not rejoicing in the Lord, the greatest enemy that keeps us from rejoicing in the Lord is works-based religion. Because works-based religion is dead religion. It can offer you no life. Because you are taking salvation and you are once again taking salvation into your own hands and you're once again saying, I will do this. And we can't. Paul says, look, this is the truth. I'm telling you, I'm warning you. I've warned you with this before. Don't listen to those evil advocates 
of works-based salvation. Don't give in to circumcision and the law. Don't try to add your works to faith. And then he encourages them. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So he tells them several things, trying to encourage them. He says, we are the circumcision. What's he mean by that? That seems weird, right? What he means is this, we are the true people of God because our hearts have been circumcised. The spirit of God has cut away that, 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 that fleshly desire, those things. He's, he's cutting those away. He's given us a new heart. And we, those who have the spirit, are the true people of God. He says, we serve God by his spirit. Now, this is interesting because the word for serve can be translated as worship and work. And that's really cool. Because what it's really saying is that we are the people who worship, who serve, and who work by the Spirit. We worship, we serve, we work by the Spirit. It's not law-driven, and there's no separation. There's no separation in what is sacred and secular. I don't walk out of these walls and all of a sudden I'm in the secular world and, and I'm a secular person. No, I walk out of here and I may be in a secular world, but I'm still living a sacred set apart life for Christ. That never changes. Our work, our worship, our service, it's all one thing when you are in Christ. He says, we boast in Christ Jesus. He's saying these people are going around boasting about what they do, circumcision, the law. He says, and we put no confidence in the flesh. A lot of times when you read flesh in, in the New Testament, what it is talking about is our ability. And Paul here is saying, we don't boast in our ability. We don't lean on our ability. We lean into Christ. We trust in Jesus. We trust in grace to save us. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Let me kind of just summarize this for you. We could go back some other time and really break a lot of those things down. But understand, this is basically what Paul's saying. If right relationship and right standing with God could be achieved through human effort, I would have done it. Paul is saying, I was so dedicated. I was so zealous. I was so disciplined. I was even from the right people. I had the right heritage. Starting on day eight, I became obedient to the law. He said, if anybody should have confidence in the flesh, in their ability, it would be me. It would be me. In other words, his performance, his life before God was stellar. But listen to what he says in verse seven and eight. He says, but whatever were gains to me, this is, this is kind of where this thought of the gym stuff came. He talks a lot about gains in the end of this passage. He talks a lot about pressing on. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, here's the thing. Here's the key to what we're looking at today in rejoicing in the Lord. If we're going to press on rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of uncertainty, then here's the first thing that really has to happen. All of this begins, all of this begins, all of this rejoicing in the Lord, all of it begins with a revelation. It begins with a revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. And see, here's the thing for Paul. We look at this and he was stellar in his performance and we can look at it and go, how did Paul do all of this? And then all of a sudden he gets to this point. He jumps from this, this basically saying, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, to now all of a sudden, all of those things I worked my whole life for and was almost perfect in, all of those things now that were gains, I count them as loss. What happened? I'll tell you what happened is Acts 9. That's where Paul met Jesus. I've told you this in the introduction to, to the, these messages a lot where, where Paul on, in Acts chapter nine, he was going and persecuting churches. He was literally carrying men, women, children, Christians off and putting them in jail. Some were even being put to death. And Paul on the road to a city called Damascus, he's, he's on his way with letters to go and arrest and persecute these Christians. And all of a sudden, he's blinded by a light. And he falls on his face and he recognizes that this is something divine. And he says, who are you, Lord? And he got the worst answer that he could possibly get. He said, Paul, I'm Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. And see, here's what's crazy. Here's what's so cool about this. In that moment, in the glory of Christ, it was so incredible and so blinding that, that, that it literally blinded his eyes. In that moment, Paul's entire religious foundation crumbled. All of the righteous props that Paul had put in place melted. It made me think about where Isaiah says that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. In that moment, Paul realized that all of his achievement, all of his goodness, all the right things he had ever done, all of his pursuit of Jesus or of God, all of those things that he had been zealous for, he realized that in that moment, they could not stand up to the righteousness of God. And they melted. Here's my question, is if Paul, who had achieved all of this, could not stand before the Lord on his own righteousness, how would we ever think that we can? And maybe in our minds we would say, I don't do that, but in our actions and somewhere in our subconsciousness, we're still striving for what only Jesus can give us. On that road to Damascus, I thought about it like this. It is as if Jesus came demanding an accounting. 
It's like Jesus comes to Paul and it's time to account, Paul. You're really leaning on your own righteousness. Well, it's time for an accounting. And Paul realized that all his self-credit and righteousness had only left his account severely lacking. He didn't have enough to pay the debt. But instead of Jesus demanding the wages of sin, which Romans tells us is death, instead of demanding the wages of sin, which is death, Jesus deposited his own righteousness into Paul's account. How incredible is that? And here's the thing, guys. Every believer in this room can say the same thing. That when we met Jesus, we realized our accounts were severely lacking. But instead of making us pay the wages of our sin, which is death, he deposited his righteousness into our accounts. And life begins the day I realize that my account is empty, but Jesus paid my debt. And that is the revelation that we have to have, that my account was empty, but Jesus paid the debt, that the one who should have killed me gave me life, that the one who should have condemned me bought my pardon, that the one who should have enslaved me set me free, that he found me poor and made me rich. He found me blind and made me see. He found me wretched and made me righteous. He found me dead and made me alive. And when he came to me, I was a beggar, yet he made me his son. When he came to me, I was a sinner, but he made me a saint. When he came to me, I was like the prodigal, but he brought me home. Rejoice, right? When we really see that, how can we not rejoice? There has to be this revelation. Paul's attitude was so different. All that stuff I propped my life up on, it's loss. Everything that was a gain, it's nothing. Everything that had worth is a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That revelation is what begins the rejoicing and we need to have that revelation over and over and over again. Verse 8, he tells us this. He says, what is more, I consider everything loss. Everything. Here's the challenge to this, guys. When that revelation comes, we're confronted with a question. Is the value of Jesus so great that I'll consider everything else loss? Is the life that Jesus gives us so great? This is not just for super apostles. This is for Christians, period. When I see Jesus and his glory, his grace, his love, and all my righteousness melts before him, do I come to a place where I can consider everything else lost, all my achievements, all my gains, everything I prop myself up on, it is loss. Because here's the thing I would tell you, to gain, you have to lose some things. To gain in our relationship with Jesus, we have to lose some things. There is a cost value to everything. Now don't confuse this with salvation. 
Salvation is a free gift. But if I'm to follow Jesus, I can't have all this other stuff clinging to me. I consider it all lost to pursue him. I consider it all lost to follow him. To gain, you have to lose some things. There is a cost value to everything. Understand, this, you know, when I was 10 years old, we lived next to some people that um, wanted me to cut their grass. I don't know about y'all, but how many of y'all, you know, you started cutting grass with a push mower and you were too small to hold on to the, the big bar, so you cut it with the little bar, down the middle bar? Like, that's what I did too, right? And, and so the neighbors next door, they, they, they would pay me to cut their grass. I was 10 years old. They would pay me $40 to cut their grass. Now, it was a big yard with a push mower. But you think the cost value was worth that when I was 10? I mean, 20 years ago, $40 was a lot of money. Actually, that was in 1985. Woo! But $40 was a lot of money. Now, granted, this is South Georgia in July. But hey, the cost was worth the value. And I cut that grass, man. I couldn't wait. I was like, I wanted to go water it for them. Let's get this thing growing. It was worth it. But see, it's like that with everything. If I'm going to grow in my relationship with Jesus, if I'm going to really be able to rejoice in Christ, there's a cost value. Am I willing to count everything else as lost so I can pursue him? And here's, here's the truth about this. Here's the thing. Some of us, when we're confronted with this, when we're confronted with Jesus and will I count it as lost, we're going to be like that rich ruler, right? Some people call him the rich young ruler. Bible says Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him. And the young man comes and tries to justify himself before Jesus. He says, Jesus, what must I do to enter heaven? And Jesus names off some of the commandments. And the young man says, all those things I've done since my youth. Then Jesus says, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And it says that that young man walked away sad because he had great wealth. See, see that's, I don't believe that's a parable saying that having, having things is, is bad. I don't, I don't believe that. But you've probably heard this said before. It's not that having things is bad. It's that when those things have you, that it's bad. Am I willing to count those things as lost? Because sadly, many of us will look at Jesus and see his glory and we will turn away disheartened because the cost seemed too great. Others of us will be like that crowd that followed Jesus around, just sort of, sort of there, but not really following. We know this because one time Jesus tells them, he's talking about being the bread of life and he's talking about giving them life. And he tells them this hard saying, and granted, this is tough to hear and think about that they didn't know really what he was talking about at this time. But he tells them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. <laughs> granted, that's a little weird, right? Looking back, we can understand it. The Bible said that many left him 
And he looked at the disciples and said, do you want to go too? And Peter replied, you're the one with truth. Where would we go? But those crowds were sort of half-hearted. I would call it kind of lukewarm. They were in it till it got difficult. Some will be like that rich ruler, the cost is too high. Some will kind of follow, but when times get hard, it's like that rocky soil that Jesus talks about in Matthew 13. He says, the seed was sown and it began to sprout and it began to grow, but that soil was so hard that when the sun came, it scorched the plant, it died, it just withered. But here's the glorious part of it. Some are gonna be like Zacchaeus. Y'all remember that story? Little songs, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man. That that song, that's the only lines I know. But you remember Zacchaeus has climbed up in this tree and Jesus is coming. He was so short he couldn't see, so he climbs up in the tree and, and Jesus is walking by and he says, Zacchaeus, come out of that tree, get down. And Zacchaeus immediately comes down. And he's so thrilled that Jesus would call him to come and be with him. He says, look, I'll, I'll pay back everything and then some that I've taken. He was a tax collector. He extorted money. He'd stolen. He'd done all these things. He's like, Jesus, I'll make it right. I just want to follow you. And then Jesus goes to his house and they fellowship together and, and they, they're eating and they're celebrating. The cost value for Zacchaeus was worth it. I would ask you this, is the cost value worth it for you? Verse nine, he says, that I want to be found in him, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He says, I want to be found in him. He goes on in verse 10, I want to know him. If we're going to press on in joy, rejoicing, if we're going to keep pressing in joy, rejoicing in the Lord, then we better press in. The mistake we often make is that we try to press on before we press in. And we had better press in. We count the cost and then we press in to be found in him, to be found with him, to be one with him. How does that happen? It happens at the moment of salvation. But again, the greatest enemy of our rejoicing in Jesus is works-based salvation. It is not truly understanding what Jesus has done for us. I, I wanna invite Jesus out here to help me with this demonstration. Look at him. He's got a little glow about him, doesn't he? And I hope, <laughs> I hope this works. But here's the thing. When we come to salvation, for many of us, and I'm, I'm just going to lay down and keep talking. If I go to sleep, I lost an hour of sleep, so y'all just ignore it. But for many of us, when we come to salvation, this is what it is for us. We come to salvation, we get the weight on us, and we think that life is all about me. If I'm going to do it, if I'm going to get it right, it's all on me. And we're steady trying to lift. 
We're steady trying to press. The weight of sin is so great on us and we feel this burden, but our relationship with Jesus is just that. It's just a burden because we're still trying to get it right. All the weight of it's still on me. Does that make sense? I'm doing the lifting. Here's another way we see it. I'm gonna end up falling and breaking my neck. Here's another way we see it. And see, wait, wait, you gotta say this first. I knew this was a lose-lose situation because somebody's gonna say, well, why didn't you put some weight on the bar? And if I put weight on the bar, somebody say, well, Bridget, you didn't put much weight on the bar, did you? So it was just a lose-lose. But anyway, let's just go with the illustration. And so when, when I get here now, here's what we think about it. Let's say I had a little bit too much weight and we realize now our sin is really heavy. And so we get to this place and we're like, oh, I'm at this place where I'm stuck. Guess what? We look at Jesus as what we call a spotter. And so he combines with my effort to finish the work. And here's the thing I would tell you, that's not it either. It's not, I'm going to do as much as I can. And then when I get to the end of myself, I'm just going to cry out to Jesus and Jesus saves me and he does the rest of the lifting. That's not what God calls us to. That's not the faith he calls us to. Let me show you what the faith is. Because here's the thing. My sin is my own sin. Nobody calls me to sin. Nobody put it on me. My sin is my sin. I have sinned. And guess what? That weight is on me. Now, what God calls me to do is completely take my hands off of the weight and to trust Jesus to pick it up off of me. That's what salvation looks like. It's not my effort combined with his. It's not if, if it's going to happen, I got to do it. You know what it is? It's me surrendering to Jesus. It's me taking my hands off. Understand this. You are not saved through your effort. You are saved by rejecting your own effort and trusting in Jesus. That's salvation. Thank you, Jordan Jesus. And maybe that's kind of a cheesy example. I don't know, but I want you to see that because especially in, in the South, man, we think that somehow it's my effort combined with Jesus in salvation and it's not. I'm found in him because I quit with my ability and I'm trusting in his. And my faith brings me to Christ and I'm found in him. The last verses say this. I want to know Christ just to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but listen, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See, once I've pressed in, once I'm in him, once I'm drawing near to him, I'm ready to press on. He says, I'm, I keep pressing on. See, it's not about not giving effort. It's about where the effort's coming from. Paul in another letter said this. He said, I've worked harder than them all, yet not I, but grace working in me. Paul says, I press on to the power of the resurrection. In other words, I'm fellowshipping with God through the spirit. And because of the spirit, I keep pressing on. He said, I press on to the cross. He says his suffering, what was Jesus' greatest suffering? It was on the cross. Guess what Jesus calls us to do daily, to die. 
to carry our cross. See, the resurrection didn't happen until after Jesus was dead. If we want to experience the power of the resurrection, then we have to die to ourselves so that the life of Christ can live in us. He says, I press on to death. I want to experience his death. Listen, I want to experience what it means to die so I can live. And he knows one day, real death, physical death will come. But he says, I keep pressing on because I know this, that I too will rise with Jesus. And understand this, circumstances do not determine any of this. What does it look like for us? And guys, this is where the rubber really meets the road. When we have this revelation, when we begin to consider all things loss and we count the cost and the cost value is worth it. When we get to this place where, where I'm really beginning to press in and I really want to know him, this experiential knowledge of him. I come to this place then where the rubber meets the road because what does it look like to press in and press on? It looks like this. It looks like faithfulness. And understand this, it is faithfulness in what often feels like the everyday mundane things of life. We think about all the great things that happen. Think about uh, in the Bible, we think about like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and all the miracles that took place. And we feel like that was jam-packed. But go through and count the miracles that happened while they were wandering in the wilderness. And then remember this, that is over a span of 40 years. Great things happen because we show up every single day and are faithful in the things that often feel like they are mundane and may not even matter. But we need to understand this, that the greatest impact is made through those small steps of faith and faithfulness. You need to understand faithfulness is cumulative. Those, that everyday faithfulness builds up to something. He's building us for something. He's building us to something. And depth in the Christian life is not accomplished in a day. It's accomplished one day at a time. Listen, gains, gains in your relationship with God happen because you show up every day. It happens because you're faithful every day. And when you show up, you just, you do your best. I'm pressing in so I can press on. I'm pressing in so the joy of God is in my heart. I'm pressing in so I can rejoice. And listen, when we come to Christ, there is a desire that is placed in our heart. Our affections come for God. There's something that we want. I was talking to a guy the other day. He was, he was like wanting to make sure he was saved. And he kept talking about wanting to know God, wanting to know God, wanting to know God, wanting to know God. And I said, how are you going to say that? I said, I can't tell you what's in your heart. But what I hear is that you have a desire for God. And he was like, yeah, I do. I have a desire to know him. And I said, well, I don't know too many unsaved people that want to know God more. So there's a desire. And listen, that desire will lead us to discipline, but we've got to embrace it. We've got to embrace it. 
Then that discipline, when we discipline ourselves in the word, and it's maybe today it just felt like eating, you know, green beans. It just wasn't that exciting. But you know what? It's still good for me. And I begin to pray. And I get in community with other believers and, and, and I begin to use the gifts God's given me and I discipline myself. And that discipline, listen, will ultimately lead to delight. Someone shared this with me one day. It's brilliant. Desire leads to discipline. That discipline will lead to delight. And guess what delight will lead you to? Rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord. And that's what I want to encourage you towards today. You're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. If you've never surrendered to Jesus and you've never let him lift the weight off your chest, if you're try still trying to do Jesus plus your effort, then listen, that's not going to work. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus isn't inviting you into some situation where I put my effort in combination with his effort. No, no, no. It's all Jesus. And then I begin to press in and then I can press on and then joy is in my heart and this desire turns into discipline and that discipline turns into delight and that delight turns into rejoicing. And that's what I want to pray for us today about. Lord, I thank you this morning for your goodness to us, your love for us, your grace in our lives. I thank you, Father, for the power of your word. Lord, would you use it to set us free from our striving and straining? God, that we would just press in, knowing that the more we know you, the more we'll become like you. Let desire turn to discipline and discipline turn to delight and delight fill our heart with rejoicing. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.